go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now, runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. The Green Dot is sponsored by GE Aviation. Well, welcome back, and thank you for tuning in for another episode of The Green Dot. We're very excited to uh, come out and talk with you guys a bit. A uh, little bit of a different uh, run of show today. Uh, my name is Chris. I'm the EAA Museum Programs Coordinator here, and uh, of course, one of your hosts, but uh, Sitting next to me is neither Tom or Hal. Uh, we have a different host uh, sitting in with us today. Uh, mystery guest, you want to let them know who you are? Oh, thank you, Chris. Uh, Jim Busha. I'm the Director of Publications and Marketing at EAA, and it's an honor to actually use Hal's microphone. Uh, it, it is. It is. We, uh, we just had it bronzed here not long ago, and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, for everybody back here, uh, Jim's a, a longtime uh, a friend and, and, and a, of course, a, a leader here at EAA. And uh, prior to this, we sent out a link of uh, this is kind of like Maverick finding out that he's going to fly with uh, with Viper uh, at the end of Top Gun. So it's a very good day. And, uh, of course, we have a special guest here today, uh, Mark Sulper, chairman of Ultralight and LSA Council. Uh, Mark, thank you for coming on and being with us today. Ah, thank you. It's great to be here. Well, Mark, let me ask you, you know, how did you first get bit by the bug of aviation? What, what first got you into it? Oh, man, that was a long time ago. But, you know, I was fortunate as a young man to grow up during the space program. So in the 60s, you know, my mother would take me into the house when I was out playing in the playground and run in the house to watch Mercury launch and, and uh, watch the heroes of the space program. And as I grew up, of course, the space program grew up with me. So that was the motivation. It was absolutely incredible to grow up during the Apollo uh, era and stuff and see man walk on the moon. Coming from Green Bay, Wisconsin and the Green Bay Packer land, it was like an alternative fun thing to do. So uh, that led me right down the road to a flying. You know, I always think it's interesting. A lot of times people will say, like, well, you know, the space program gave us cool things like Velcro and Tang. And it's like, no. Yes, we got items like that from the space program, but what really the cool thing that came out of the space program was inspiration um, absolutely. for people. We, it celebrates intelligence, and it, and it gave people something to aim at. Oh, it absolutely did. You know, I studied harder in school and wanted to learn math because my mother was very clever, and she'd say, well, Mark, if you want to be an astronaut, you have to do better at math. So the motivation was there, and it just turned out wonderful. And, of course, that uh, watching them do that, ironically, not ironically, I guess, but the space program motivated me to a career in aviation that I, I could never repeat. It's just one of the luckiest people in the world. But a lot of the items I learned as a young man watching the astronauts and learning how they managed the flight and the checklist and, of course, Capcom, right, all that stuff, those same skills are used in an airline career, the discipline of the checklist and the discipline of the program. So, yeah, what a great time. It was just magic. I remember as we sit here right now as if Neil Armstrong stepped foot on the moon yesterday. It's just, it's just incredible. Of course, I had a great bowl of buttered popcorn on my lap at the time, too. <laughs> well, and, and let, let's talk about your first flight. Do you remember that that stands out? What was your first flight in? Where were you? Oh, absolutely. I remember, in fact, uh, my son, who's 31 now, also a professional pilot, sent me a package in the mail. And it was a wonderful package, but it was a picture of me at nine or 11 years old at Executive Air in Green Bay, getting out of the airplane with Gary. I believe his name was Wingate. He's you know, passed by now. And it was a picture of this little kid getting out of the airplane on his first flying lesson. 
And I remember that day. It's just wonderful. And uh, that was the first lesson. Green Bay, Wisconsin, November 28th. Uh, it was a birthday present. And boy, that lit the fire. And I remember Gary holding the controls. I, I can re I visualize, I can still see him. He let me do a turn. But as a good instructor, he had his thumb under the yoke. <laughs> <laughs> and he's, of course, he said, I landed it. And I know I could have landed. I couldn't see over the dashboard. <laughs> the glare shield was quite high. But that was my first flight lesson. And uh, that led into just unbelievable chain of events where executive air kind of adopted me my parents would take me to the airport on saturday morning at six in the morning drop me off and executive air would feed me and and they let me sweep the hangar floor and that was the most wonderful thing you could ever do 11 year old kids sweeping the hangar between all these airplanes how wonderful did you have any favorites back then and what did you learn how to fly in uh favorite aircraft A favorite aircraft yes. anything that flew uh, my first flight was in a small Cherokee 140. Uh, I fell in love with a pit special because uh, there was one at the hangar, little S1S, I believe it was. And I liked that aircraft. I had no idea it was performance and, and the skill required to fly it, but it was a small aircraft, and I was a small 11-year-old. And it was this magic. That was my favorite airplane for so long. And then, of course, as time advanced, any airplane somebody let you to fly or allow you to fly, was my favorite airplane. <laughs> so, but most of my time was in Cessnas and, uh, and of course, ultralights and stuff in the 80s. And uh, it was a very magical time. And then eventually you do progress into an airline career, correct? Yeah. The, the path was very interesting. Uh, you know, after the first flight lesson, hanging around airports, uh, my teen years were just spent at the airport with Green Bay Aviation. and got to know a lot of the, lot of the local legends. And as it went on, I started learning to fly at 15, uh, soloed at 16, got my private at 17. And the lucky thing for myself and so many of my generation is you find sponsors, somebody that invests in you. And my parents were loving parents and they worked very hard, but aviation was a pretty expensive thing and uh, met some people that helped me along the way, gave me some educational guidance and stuff and uh, worked my way through, became a charter pilot and uh, at that time, I still wanted to be an air show pilot, but if you ever saw me do aerobatics, you knew that wasn't a possibility. <laughs> but, you know, it was pretty fun. And, uh, boy, for a while there, you couldn't make a living flying. And I was out selling cars for Karch Ford in Pulaski, Wisconsin. I was a number one truck salesman. I don't know anything about trucks then or today. <laughs> I just sold it through their eyes, I guess. And uh, then a couple of breaks happened. And I got hired at my first commuter airline and uh, found a passion for flying the airliners, the Shorts 360, which is the box most parts come in. And uh, again, lucky guy, just a lucky dog. I was adopted into a training program. I became an instructor and check airman and, and that advanced. And then my son was born and I thought, man, I want to be home a little bit. So I went to work for the Federal Aviation Administration for a while. And, uh, that was a really good time. We like, you know, we all like to kind of pick on the FA a little bit, but it was a wonderful experience and time. It was all air carrier. And I spent six years with the FA and uh, decided my son was older. It's time to get back into the cockpit. And uh, amazingly, went and interviewed with America West Airlines and I was hired and I was hired in as the manager of training and safety programs with a line pilot number. 
My first big jet aircraft was a 757. So as my mother said, you always had a little luck over your head. <laughs> uh, spent a lot of time there, but the, one of the parts of flying that were really fun to, to kind of back up is when I was about, I was working at Pulaski Airport and a gentleman came in to buy a truck, uh, Jim Padora, founder of Deeper Foundry. And he said, why are you selling trucks? Well, because nobody's hiring airplanes. So we bought a flight school in Pulaski, Wisconsin. He bought it, actually. I own some stock. And uh, I ran the flight school for multiple years prior to the airline career. It was at that time, that was the early 80s. That was that time when one of my students bought an Eagle Aerolite, uh, the famous Eagle Aerolite. Well, I was flying the Cubs and the decathlon and all that stuff at the time, and I kept walking around this Eagle. I'm just amazed. This is the coolest thing because, well, Jim, you're roughly the same age myself, I'm assuming. We grew up with the Quicksilver, run, the hang glider era. This thing was just like that, only it had an engine. So I asked a guy what it's like to fly. He says, get in it. I was strapped in, and we don't recommend this for anyone anymore. We're much more sophisticated, but he started the engine and just said, it'll come off the ground when it's ready to come off the ground. Well, I flew it around a while, got involved with the Quicksilver, uh, flew that quite a bit. And uh, that stayed in touch until I got busy raising a family. Yeah. So, so this eagle, uh, and you can describe it if you will for us, but it's just tube and you're hanging out there, correct? <laughs> oh, uh, explain that sensation. Well, the eagle back then is tube and, and uh, cell cloth. It was a uh, kind of had like a hang glider wing to it with rudders hanging off the tip, but it had a canard. And that's why the owner, who's a professor at UWGB today, it had a canard, so he's pretty confident I couldn't stall it. It just kind of mushes. That was the first time I, I did some skydiving, but this is the first time I stayed in the air without falling. <laughs> and I couldn't believe it. I could smell the air. I could smell the corn. And, you know, we read textbooks, and all the textbooks tell us about thermals and stuff, right? But when you're in an ultralight for the first time and you go between a plowed field and a grass field and, and it, you can just feel the lift, it was so magic, Jim. It was incredible. It just it was beautiful. It was very easy to fly. And uh, uh, my personal claim to fame, John Moody flies one too. <laughs> <laughs> well, the father of ultralights. The father then. of ultralights. And uh, in fact, I had all I could do not to buy his at Air Venture a couple of years ago. But... That's what ultralighting is all about. You know, it's, it's simple, it's, it's fun, it's affordable. But what's really beautiful about ultralighting is it's the most freedoms we have to fly. We have a lot of responsibilities with the freedoms. We want to self-regulate and be safe. But imagine getting up and uh, if you all allow me a little, a little moment to explain my normal flight in a powered parachute. I have a, a rascal. It's a power chute, uh, 103 legal, ultralight. My favorite thing to do is to go up to Plum Grove Airport, which is a, a little farm flying field north of Greenleaf. I set it out before the sun comes up. As the sun's cracking, I get it all ready to go. I take off. I have a thermos of coffee. Now, you know, a PPC, a powered parachute, it's pretty easy to fly. I'll set the trims, and I'll just let it go for 30 minutes. Whatever way it wants to go, I don't care. And I'm at 150 feet, I feel the morning air, I see the birds, I can feel the temperature. Sometimes I fly a little higher to get warmer air, 
and I have my morning coffee. I don't do it every day, but it's just the most beautiful thing when you can pull it off. And to me, that's the spirit of ultralighting. You're in the environment. You can feel your environment. And it's, it's, and it's simple to do. It's fun. That's, and, that sounds just like such serenity and, and just beautiful uh, it um, is. It to, is. to experience it's, that. It, and, uh, you know, ultralight's vary quite a bit, too. You know, the different ones I have. I'm fortunate I have three different ones because I wanted to learn three different style ultralights. But they all have that commonality of you're in the element. And it's just, it's fun. It's, uh, I think the powered paraglider, the, the backpack, there, that, that's, I'm, I'm going to try that next. That is the freedom of flight. To put this machine literally in the back of your car, drive somewhere. When I drive back to Florida, I could actually pull off the side of the road, see this beautiful field set up, and go fly. When I'm done, put it back in. And no hangar, nothing. Just put it back in and continue driving. Just go stop at the favorite restaurant. You know. So so you mentioned three different ultralights, and I'd like to hear more about those, but I'd also like you to help Chris and I pull people off the fence that want to fly. They think that cost is a factor. They think that accessibility is a factor. I think the ultralights are overlooked, and, oh. and help, us, help us ease that for, for those people that want to get into flying. Well, you're right. They're overlooked quite a bit just because they're not, you don't see them everywhere. And uh, to kind of share a story on that, I'm sitting on my girlfriend's deck in Greenleaf, Wisconsin, and a, a hyperlight flew over. He was going so fast, I could see him for 10 minutes. I could flip the burgers. He's just out there enjoying it. Then a powered parachute came by, and then one of the powered paragliders came by. All three of them were enjoying aviation in its simplest form. All three of them went put their machines away on their personal property or in their trailer. That's the beauty of ultralighting. FER 103, the regulation that governs us, is very simple. If it weighs less than 254 pounds, five gallons of gas in a single seat, you don't need a medical. You don't need a license to fly it. You certainly have to use common sense, though. It is a flying machine. You still got to be trained and, and have good airmanship skills, which you can get involved in a local EA chapter and stuff. So you mentioned, Jim, getting somebody off the fence. Uh, after a year flying, after flying ultralights and flying commercially, I was on that fence, and I was looking down this other path. Oh, I should go get a J3 Cub or should do that. But when I watched them fly over that day, and they're waving, one of them dropped a little man parachute. It's like, how much, how fun is that? So getting off the fence, really, if, if you just want to fly, if you want to experience the spirit of aviation, the beauty of flying, you want to be your own airline of one, if you will, ultralighting is it, you know, and, and there's so many good people in the ultralighting community to help you. Uh, I had coaches for each one of my flying machines. I had a different set of coaches to help me fly safely. EAA provided, Tim Bogenhagen provided incredible guidance in getting, getting recurrent in doing it, which felt like I never left it. It felt it. So it's a hard question to answer to way, Jim. Off the fence, I mean, if you're looking for just fun, if you're looking for simplicity, and you're looking for something you don't have to sell the house, Ultralighting is it. And today, if you've been to the Fun Fly Zone in the last four or five years, uh, the diversity 
of equipment. The diversity of flying machines covers everything from a single seat hot air balloon to powered paragliders of all sorts of configurations to scratch built ultralights to trikes and uh, everything you want. It's just beautiful. So there's something for everybody right now and there's a lot of manufacturers that are putting out some quality equipment reasonably priced, cheaply priced when you compare it to regular aircraft, and they're safe. You can fly them and enjoy them. My average cost to fly my one ultralight, I, I figured out uh, probably comes about 11 bucks an hour. That's gas and oil. If I include the coffee, maybe 13 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Chris, uh, maybe we should end this right now. You and I go get ourselves an ultralight. I mean, I want to go right now and, I do and get into this. I'll get the coffee field. and we'll go. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know the, one of the fun comments in my first uh, my first ride in a powered parachute, and it, it, to, to paint it a little bit. This is just one of those magic moments, and uh, you know, and uh, it, it reminds me a lot of a Paul Pomerenzi quote, but. Uh, I go to, I'm chasing these powered parachutes, the old guy version, right? The wheels on them. And I'm chasing, I can't find them. Of course, I'm looking for an airport. Or they're landing on their personal farm strip. So one day, Ron flies over and I chase him. I chase him. I'm going, well, I'm going to speed limit, but I'm really being aggressive. And I find him. I will introduce myself. I've been looking for you for a while. He goes, oh, wow, cool. Who are you? I go, can I see your machine? So he shows me and he says, you need to go to NORMS. The Wisconsin Powered Parachute Association has a fly-in tonight and you need to go for a ride in one. No, no, that's okay. No, I don't, I don't want to do that. No, I don't want to do that. No, you should have. He didn't take no for an answer. He dials the phone, talks to Dennis Zerbel, says, yeah, send him and his girlfriend down and we'll make sure they get airborne. Wow. Okay, Canada, uh, free food and free ride in an airplane for pilots, right? We're, talk, we're talking heaven here. So we raced down to Oostburg, and everybody is so welcoming. They just made us feel like a million dollars. I mean, just, and I said, hey, we're not part of the club. We don't know anything about it. It didn't matter. Three hot dogs later and incredible conversation. I'm sitting on the back of this powered parachute of Dennis Zerbel's. Now, keep in mind, my last takeoff, was in a uh, A321. And <laughs> not an ultralight. Yeah, not an ultralight. <laughs> and they take a lot of runway. I mean, okay, uh, that's why that one's for Boeing, right? They, the Airbus takes a lot of runway. <laughs> and I'm, I'm looking at the end of the runway, and I'm used to seeing eight, nine, ten, ten thousand feet. And even then, you see Bill and say, man, I hope the engineers did this correctly. Well, I'm sitting on the back of Dennis's machine, and, <laughs> you know, there's trees and there's a fence you know 900 feet away but i don't want to be insulted. this guy's nice enough to so i would lean forward and i try to think as politically gentle or correct as i can i said wow these runways are kind of short <laughs> <laughs> he says oh yeah don't no he goes we'll be off the ground in 100 feet 150 feet we we could take off and land twice if you're uncomfortable, you don't have to go. No, no, let's go. Oh, he was right. We we're so high over the, the end of the runway, and we're flying, and he sh he's showing me how to fly. And that was my first one. So now we fly around. Oh, I can't tell you the excitement. I just, he takes me near Lake Michigan. And, uh, it was just just beautiful. So now we're coming in to land, and he, he's kind of apologizing. This is going to be the slowest thing I've ever experienced. 
<laughs> well, let's think about that for a minute. Yeah. So we're coming in. Now, a powered parachute is beautiful. It taxis at 30. It takes off at 30. It climbs at 30. It cruises at 30. It descends at 30. And it lands at 30. And if you want to taxi to the hangar with your canopy up, it taxis at about 25, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so we're coming in, and it's just it's, – it's really nice. We come over the fence and we're coming to land and we land. Man, I'm, I'm, I got a death grip, which is embarrassing after 16,000 hours of flying. I got a death grip. I'm hoping I'm not grabbing him. Cause this is kind of embarrassing. I hope nobody's watching, right? And uh, we come to a stop and he says, that had to be the slowest landing. That must have been so slow for you, it maybe bored you. Dennis, that was the fastest I think I've ever been <laughs> in 30 years, 30 miles an hour with the, everything right there, feeling the wind, feeling the power, smelling your environment, it was, it was beautiful. And it is actually very slow now. But <laughs> so, so you touched a little bit on the people. What is the ultralight community like? And for those, again, sitting on the fence, is it welcoming? Absolutely. Um, my experience with three different types of flying machines uh, was, although somewhat the same group, uh, everybody is exceptionally helpful. Everybody's stressed, make sure you get training. You need to do this. Uh, very cautious. As far as a community goes, incredibly welcoming, incredibly warm. They're just, they're fun. It's pretty much like a lot of the EA family. I'd actually, actually say, you know, it's really not much different than a lot of the EA family. You know, we're, we all love flying. We all love aviation. We all love the EAA and what, what Paul has set up for us. Many of us select different types of flying machines through our life. And we see that with the ultralights and the PPCs and the PPGs, people going back and forth. Uh, one of the ultralights I have in Aerolite is purchased by people that are mostly coming from Cessnas and, and high-performance aircraft because they want to just fly uh, less expensively and, and cheap, and, and they, they, that's the one they saw at AirVenture. To answer your question, Jim, is I can't, no matter how I say it, it sounds like a commercial, it's not. It is the most welcoming, uh, warming group you'd have. Not much different than other EAA families, though. We're all flyers. We all love what we do. We love sharing it. Mark, you're, you're, you're certainly well-spoken, and you really paint a, a cool picture of both the flying the aircraft and the and the environment uh, and the camaraderie that exists around it, um, which is probably very fitting why last year you were named chairman of Ultralight and uh, Light Sport Aircraft Council. Um, what did it mean to you to reach that position? Oh, incredible. Uh, it, it still hasn't really sunk in on many levels. Uh, before I was fortunate to be tapped for the uh, chairmanship role, as, as, as if you're an airline, if you fly for an airline or work for an airline, you get to fly free. Of course, you're the last person on the airplane, right? No bags or nothing, get on, shut up, you know. But, but you, don't, you don't have to pay the ticket price. So, like, free food and free flying, it's pretty good. So, I was in Minneapolis, and I walked on the airplane. There's only one seat left. The gate agent's pushing me on like they normally do. <laughs> Give me your bag. I'll never see that computer again. And, and uh, I sit down. I'm, br I'm breathing heavy. And I looked to my right, guess who's sitting there? Paul Poberenzi. Well, I went from breathing hard to like not breathing. <laughs> really? <laughs> Paul po so I sat there for a minute. I started to figure, how do you address Paul Poberenzi? So I looked over at him and I said, Mr. Poberenzi, it's an honor to sit next to you. Wow, he was the most normal 
person. You would have guessed that was Paul Pormitz. He talked about aviation and flying and about EA, and he kept asking what I like about EA, but he also asked what I didn't like about it. It's very unique. And we had a great conversation. So uh, that was kind of just wonderful juice. I had to share that story. I kind of parlayed it a little bit <laughs> roughly into this, I guess, but but that that experience continued on. So. I volunteered with Tim Bogenhagen just to do some projects for EA. I didn't really know. I started out as a docent, and uh, it was pretty fun. Yeah, wow, all these people coming and sharing aviation and the passion and, and walking the museum. And, and I kept noticing that when we got to the certain parts of the museum, people would look at the ultralight, the Quicksilver up there. And we always were showing the, the RV and stuff, beautiful kid. I mean, what a, what a phenomenal company. But everybody's saying, well, is there a less expensive way to do it? Of course, here hangs a Quicksilver. So I started giving my spiel about ultralighting at that point. And uh, next thing you know, I'm working with Tim. And uh, my introduction to volunteer, I did it myself, but I like to pick on Tim for Tim Bogenhagen for it. He said, well, you can give us a hand. Would you mind calling our list of instructors that are available for ultralights and light sport aircraft as part of our service to the community? Or oh, heck yeah, I will. Well, 1,800 phone calls later, we, we updated the report, but it just it convinced me EAA is just incredible. Talking to the membership, uh, everybody's polite, someone had suggestions. So that worked more in getting onto the council. So then uh, Carla Larsh, who was a council chairman for a long time, uh, looked at my application and had Jim House come in or call and interview me. Well, Jim and I hit it off really well. And I was invited to join the council. So put a couple of years in on the council, and Carla wanted to retire after an incredible run and, and uh, just tremendous dedication in FDA. Uh, she tapped me. Uh, all you folks supported me, and uh, I got the nod to uh, be on the council. And of course, one of the great one of the great benefits to really see EAA as wonderful as it is is to go what I call behind the curtain and sit on the board of directors. As a council chairman, you get to sit on the board of directors. You got to, you voted on. And uh, EA is what we say. It's a beautiful organization with a membership at heart. And uh, as a result of the role in the board, that actually created the agenda we've developed now. And the beauty of the Ultralight Light Support Aircraft Council is there's so much we can do to plug into other programs at EAA that we traditionally haven't looked at for ultralighters. For instance, Type Club Coalition. Ultralights are very unique. And you, when you transition to them from a high-performance aircraft or any aircraft to an ultralight, there's some, there's some differences to it. It's very easy to fly, by the way, but there are some differences. And uh, we started working on programs to improve that. And uh, right now, the council is uh, reaching out to uh, the ultralight chapters. And we just brought on two new members, uh, Jim Farr, ultralight chapter president for ultralight chapter number one. He's doing great things. He's going to work with, a, or obviously the council is a member. He's going to work with John Egan and myself, and we're going to do an outreach program to all 21 ultralight chapters and to help them help them be more familiar with all the products EA has and help them realize that this is all for all of us. It's inclusive for everybody. Uh, training programs, uh, we brought a gentleman on, Jim Britt, who's gonna take a look at the training programs. And we're updating our training programs, our training guides. Uh, we're taking a look at how can we improve that product? How can we help do that? Uh, he's 
jumping on that. So we're going to offer better products or ultralight training and transition in the future. And light planes too, uh, 650 pounds or less. Uh, we're in the process of recruiting a powered paraglider, a PPG guy, as we know, the, the backpackers, we lovely call them. Uh, they are an incredible group. They're an incredible amount of our ultralight community now. So we're working on getting involved with them, more training programs, and uh, making sure we represent that part of the community. So the agenda of the Ultralight Light Sport Aircraft Council has evolved a little bit, but it is really exciting. It's, it's a, as chairman, I'd say it's a really lucky time to be chairman because there's energy out there. There's, there's fun out there. People are buying aircraft and ultralights, and EAA is so supportive. The senior leadership team, uh, Jack Pelton, uh, Rick Larson, and the entire team. And I have to say, even though Jim Bush is sitting next to me, I can share a story about that. And they just want more from the council. They want the council to get more actively engaged, and uh, we're doing our best to, uh, to fill their request to get involved, make it happen. And a good story about that is a couple of years ago in a council meeting, Jim Boucher came in and uh, we had our agenda all set up. And we, you know, we're, we're a council, we had our members there and, and we're, we're doing what councils do and we're strategizing how we're gonna get Jim to do more articles in sport aviation for us. Well, so we're all ready for this. You know, this is my first thing. I'm gonna bring this up and we're gonna, we're gonna do this. Well, Jim walks in and says, I need more material. <laughs> 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 well, it kind of set us a little bit back, and Jim, on behalf of the council, a little council business here, I have to thank you, because that was our first realization that we need to step up as a plate, as a council, that you folks have been waiting for us, and uh, the monthly publications, and, and Sarah uh, working on other multimedia, we can't thank you enough for uh, helping us. Well, and, and we've good. been getting some great, great contact and a lot of uh, great feedback as well. And uh, in particular, the George Karamitis articles. I mean, he's yeah. like you. He has street cred. Yeah. I mean, you're both airline guys, but yet you choose to fly ultralights for Absolutely. the love of flying. And, and getting back to the flying part of ultralights, we didn't talk about uh, how you build one. Oh my gosh, that, that, that must be a loaded question a little bit here because uh, oh, you mentioned a community earlier and uh, you know, the community is so inviting and so helpful. I met a gentleman, his name is Lee Fisher and uh, Sydney and I were sitting at AirVenture at the Fun Fly Zone. Isn't the Fun Fly Zone wonderful? Where else can you sit so up close and personal and see and feel the flying? So I'm watching this airplane come around. It was a B1RD. In my mind, it was a it was a Santos Demoiselle, right? I mean, it was like it was like the movie, whatever. I just saw this most beautiful thing. And Lee brought the thing around the corner. He did the most beautiful slip. He touched it down, and it was just the most beautiful thing. So of course, myself and probably 50 other people <laughs> got behind the B1RD and followed it. Man, I fell in love with it. I said, I got to have one of those. Just, I have to have one of those. Of course, this would be what I did, you know, and I wanted a Quicksilver because that's what I flew in the 80s in the Eagle. But I wanted a Quicksilver for whatever reason. And I'm talking to Lee, and Lee says, well, build one. Huh? <laughs> said, just, just build one. He said, you're awfully picky about this and that, and you want this, and you want that kind of tail. He said, just build one. 
Simply, I have no idea how to build one. Anyway, so we parted company, very friendly, you know, going on. So now I'm sitting in the office doing some volunteer work. Tim Bogenhagen, who's just a linchpin for us, says, <laughs> I have a friend you need to meet. Oh, cool, let's go. Who is it? It's Lee Fisher. Now, I didn't connect the dot, right? You know, I didn't connect the dot really quick here. You know, I'm a, I'm a guy, I'm a pilot. I didn't connect that dot really quick. <laughs> and I walk in the hangar, and there he is. Oh, my gosh. Went to Skunk Works. There's all sorts of crazy flying contraptions being made there. And Lee is an incredibly heartwarming person, but he's, he's Lee Fisher. So anyway, he says, why don't you build one? I'm building a 23 BIS. Why don't you help me? Well, I didn't have time to really help and stuff, so he flew the air, he built and flew the aircraft, 23 BIS was the aircraft that, that never was, Santos Dumont, and, and Jim featured it in sport aviation. Well, I wanted one of those something fierce, but he says, well, I'm going to build it for you. I said, well, how much do you want to build it? He said, I'm not going to build it for you. you you got to learn to build. If you're going to be a part of EA, you need to learn how to build. <laughs> Lee, you don't understand. I'm not allowed to fix a garbage disposal at the house. <laughs> I don't think I've held a drill in 40 years. It doesn't matter. You'll learn. Anybody can learn. You seem somewhat bright. You can learn. <laughs> so, so anyway, we, we delayed this for a while. And one day I'm sitting there looking at the 23 bis. He says, he sits down. And for the first time, he got dead serious. He says, Mark, are you going to do it or not? Are you going to pull the trigger or not? Lee, I don't think you understand. I don't. I have no skills tools. So what? A lot of people don't. So we started on a journey. We built three twenty fours. A friendship was formed, uh, and, and I'd say, and if Lee, Lee, if you're listening, you'll agree. You couldn't ask for more unique, different personalities, completely different backgrounds. I came from a very structured airline, regimented, trained background. Lee is the pioneering spirit of altar lighting so it was it was like that whatever the tv show the two guys are opposites that's how it was it wasn't easy all the time but we had patience with each other and lee taught me how to build and drill and and measure and uh, i have a beautiful skunk works 24m and it's santos demont inspired it is it is just incredibly fun to fly it has a 40 horse engine on it and if i go wide open 6,000 rpm i'll go 25 miles an Ooh. hour oh we're smoking Whoa, here you are smoking <laughs> <laughs> but it lands at 12 and stalls at eight uh, but the building process i have to if i can share with anybody uh, you know there's so many ultralights to get off the fence right now that fit your desire and your mission. You can buy beautiful kits. You can buy beautiful ready-to-fly aircraft. Or if you find, get involved in your local EAA club and find a builder, find somebody who shares your passion for what you want to build, in this case, ultralights, and form a, just ask for help. You can do it. If I can do it, anyone can do it. And it's a beautiful one. The end of the 24th store, there was no end to it because I just flew it the other day, which is a little bit windy because it's kind of hard to go. It's hard to land at a 10-mile-an-hour head when you go 12 miles an hour, but, <laughs> but, it, but it worked eventually. But what I decided with uh, Lee Fisher Designs is if you, if you lose interest in the landing phase in a 10-knot headwind or 10-mile-an-hour headwind, you can get out and walk to the hangar. <laughs> the, the plane will just sit there. So... Uh, so now the, so the 24 story continues that my son, who uh, was a professional skydiver, 
5,000 jumps, uh, base jumper, flew the wingsuits down, all that. He's now a commercial pilot flying a Twin Otter for Twin Otter, a Twin Otter company, and he loves ultralights. He's been itching to fly an ultralight. So he did the crow hops in the 24. He fell in love with it. The 24 that started out as a result of Air Venture, I think, 2015, is now without, literally without joke, it is a family heirloom. My son has asked that when I'm done with it, no matter what, I don't do anything to the aircraft, it's his. So Lee Fisher not only helped me learn how to build and certainly allowed me to become a, a more productive member of the EA community, flying ultralights and all that, but being part of the build, it's wonderful because now I can sit there and chat with you builders and I can, for the most part, hold my own. And I know <laughs> what the excitement is and the, and the challenges and uh, the, the Icing on this cake is it's going to be my son's airplane, and he loves it. He just it's just his favorite airplane. Although the airlight's toying with him a little bit too. <laughs> One of the things I always thought about aviation is it's amazing. It, it, you know, not to sound over cheesy, but it it's life changing. One, you almost have a life before you get into it, and then once you're into it, you suddenly have this new group of friends that you hang out with. There's there's just this cool camaraderie. You know, of course you you know even if you have a hangar and it's a rainy IFR day. You still find yourself going out to the hangar because your buddies are out there. You know? Oh yeah, uh, and George does great communicating that. Uh, George's last article of being a little bit more senior and flying and stuff is just uh, it's just heartwarming. And what you just said, it, it does sound cheesy, but we're in Wisconsin, right? That's yeah. it. I yeah. mean, we have a new Packer coach who's introduced to uh, cheese curds, so uh, we're we're good to go. Uh, it is. It's uh, my son's girlfriend. One time, we're sitting in in Sedona, Arizona. And uh, we're just sitting there, and we spent all day at the airport. Then we went to dinner, and we talked, and she's with us. We talked airplanes and EAA. Then we go back, and we're watching YouTube videos. And she finally, so politely, and I said, I don't understand. You guys, for four days, been doing nothing but sitting at airports, watching airplanes, talking to people, coming home, talking over dinner. Now you're just sitting there watching airplane movies. She goes, I don't understand. I've never seen this level of passion. My son's so nonchalant. He just says, well, yeah, we love it. <laughs> we just love it. And I think I always hold that in my mind that here's this person who's not there, just can't believe we'll spend so much time. It's the best addiction to have. It is. It is. I go out to the airport when it rains to make sure that all my uh, all my uh, airplanes are dry and happy. I, I do the same. <laughs> I, and I give them a loving pet and say, see you tomorrow. Absolutely. <laughs> well, Mark, thank you so much for, for coming on and being with us today. Uh, we really appreciate it. Thank you and congratulations for, for being a part of the council. I mean, that, that's... Uh, uh, well, thank you and thank all you and thank you, Jim, and everyone oh, for allowing thank me you, the Mark. opportunity. Thank it's, you. Uh, it's it, incredible. It's been an honor to talk to you and it's it's been an even a bigger honor for me, again, to sit with uh, Chris Maverick Henry <laughs> and, uh, you know, sitting at Hal Bryan's seat. Yeah, I mean, a, you talk about a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, Mark. Yeah, yeah. Right I, on. I, I'm telling you. When people aren't looking, I sell rides to sit in the house seat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, for everybody listening at home and tuning in, we we appreciate it. Keep uh, keep leaving those uh, comments. Keep leaving us feedback. Let us know who you'd like to hear on the Green Dot. We'd love to get some ideas and, and reach out and see who we could find that you'd like to to hear on here. So, um, for all of us here on on staff, we just appreciate your support. Thanks for listening. 
And uh, we look forward to chatting with you again when you are cleared to land on the green dot. <laughs>